Hallelujah. Isn't God good? And all the time. What a sweet presence of the Lord here this morning. It's the time that uh, Jacob fell asleep on a rock, had an encounter with God. Woke up from that rocky sleep and declared, Surely the presence of the Lord was here and I knew it not. The presence of the Lord is here this morning. He's present to heal, He's present to change, He's present to deliver, and He's present to save. Amen. Thank you so much, Sia. The praise and worship, you guys are a blessing. And um, man, I'm just glad to be in God's house where we jam with the lamb. I'm trying to figure out why are people busy making so many babies in December? because there's so many birthdays in August. You know, Uncle Mark, Uncle Desmond, born on the same day. <laughs> you know, uh, Sharice, uh, yesterday we were at three birthday parties. Three birthday parties. Was it a three-year-old, a 21st, and uh, close to a 40th? Oh, 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 Thea's also in August. Yeah, man, you guys got to slow down in December, you know? Slow down, I think they should do away, do away with all the holidays. <laughs> with the leave. Yeah. Hey, man, just good to be in God's house. Uh, did I hear Darian and, and Bianca's here this morning? Wow, it's so good to see you guys. Childhood, uh, childhood friends. Uh, we all grew up together. They're also uh, excellent musos. Uh, man, you should have given us a heads up. You could have uh, done a duet or something. Uh, you guys leave for Abu Dhabi soon, eh? Next week. My goodness. You ready for the change? <laughs> hey, man, it's good. God is good. Anyone else I, I missed this morning? Nobody else? Uh, Brother Daryl, hey, man, you know you watch that movie Flash. Did you watch that movie Flash? Hey? Yeah, uh, from now onwards you call Daryl Flash. Brother got engaged over the weekend. Nobody saw it coming. Nobody saw it coming. Trust me. One minute he's single, next minute he's on the road to Jurassic Park. <laughs> Amen. Guys, you're, you're going to slow down in August, okay? Slow down, slow down. Amen. Oh, my goodness. Okay, family, we're in the book of, uh, of Genesis. We start our series um, in Genesis. Uh, we start a four-part series. And um, on the fourth uh, week in the series, we have a guest speaker. He understands the assignment. Uh, he will uh, wind up the book of Genesis for us. So I'm excited. Uh, we go back to the book of beginnings. Uh, can we just pray before we begin? Father, we ask that you immerse us 
this morning. Immerse us in your word. To whom else shall we turn? Lord Jesus, you have the words of eternal life. Speak to us. Your word is spirit and your word is truth. Your word is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, divides between joint and marrow, soul and spirit. And your word is the discerner of our deepest thoughts and intents. You send forth your word from your mouth. And it goes out from your mouth and it accomplishes all that it was set out to accomplish. And so here we are this morning declaring that we are prepared people. The soil of our hearts are receptive. Let us be like in the parable, that soil, that good soil that received the incorruptible seed of your word. Let your word bring out fruit in our lives, we ask, Lord. Let it germinate and grow to maturity. Let us fellowship with your word. And Lord, as we open up the wondrous things in your word, your written word, reveal to us the living word, the Logos, Jesus Christ himself, who had become flesh, the word who had become flesh, and had dwelt amongst us. And John, who boldly proclaimed that we beheld his glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And let me speak as an oracle this morning. Let me not be as a chef or cook that would manufacture my own thoughts or, or ideologies or presuppositions on the text, but let me serve your people as a waiter. That I might just deliver your word as it is. In the mighty name of Jesus and God's people says, Amen, Amen. You know what, there's a, uh, a culture that's developed in the house of God across the board globally. And uh, where we no longer give attention to the reading of the text. It's evident. One of the greatest pains I will experience in a service or meeting is where the preacher will say, open your Bible, and you'll just read a verse, and you say, okay, close your Bibles. Because the scripture says in Timothy, Paul gives Timothy an instruction, he says, give attention to the reading of scriptures. In Nehemiah chapter 8, that great chapter, that climactic chapter when Zerubbabel and the team had rebuilt the temple of the Lord. Nehemiah comes in afterwards and rebuilds the walls and everything was completed concerning the work of God. They gathered around to hear Ezra teach the scriptures and two things were noted. Firstly, Ezra got up on a platform and he read the scriptures. And the Bible says not only did he read the scriptures but he explained it. 
and that is the role of a preacher. You read the text and you explain the text. No more. No gimmicks, no antics. Just read and explain. Amen. Amen. This morning, turn with me to Genesis chapter 1 and we're going to do some reading. You can't get this wrong, family. If you, if you, if you see the book of Romans, hey, no, 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 no. We will excommunicate you. <laughs> okay, don't get Genesis chapter 1 wrong. Ask the belief, okay? Genesis chapter 1, and we will read the prologue. It's called the prologue in Genesis. When you're there, please, everybody give me an amen. amen. Oh, man, I'm enjoying this. In the Beninging. <laughs> in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth the earth was without form and void and darkness was on the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters then God said let there be light and there was light and God saw the light that it was good and God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. Then God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters and let it divide the waters from the waters. Thus God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament and it was so and God called the firmament heaven and so the evening and the morning were the second day and God said let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear and it was so and God called the dry land earth and the gathering together of the waters he called seas and God saw that it was good then God said let the earth bring forth grass the herb that yields the seed and the fruit that yields fruit and the, sorry and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind whose seed is in itself on the earth and it was so and the earth brought forth grass the herb that yields seed according to its kind and the tree that yields fruit whose seed is in itself according to its kind and God saw that it was good so the evening and the morning were the third day then God said let the be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years and let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth and it was so then God made two great lights the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and he made the stars also God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. 
and God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the fourth day. Then God said, Let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the face of the firmament of the heavens. So God created great sea creatures and every living thing that moves, with which waters abounded according to their kind, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. So the evening and the mornings were the fifth day. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creature according to its kind, cattle and creeping things, and the beasts of the earth, each according to its kind, and it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to its kind, cattle according to its kind, and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and every other creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created them. That's the uh, Latin word, imago Dei. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them. And God said, be fruitful and multiply. This command has not ceased, you married couples. <laughs> Fill the earth, subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, See, I've given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth and every tree whose fruit yields seed to you for it shall be for food. Also, to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food. And it was so. Then God saw everything that he had made. And indeed it was good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. And the prologue, that doesn't end yet, ends in chapter 2 verse 3, so we're going to read on. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the hosts of them were finished. And on the seventh day God ended his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. Amen. Amen. A bless to us the reading of his word. As you know, the book of Genesis is authored by Moses. Moses authored the first five books of the Bible. Uh, Genesis being the first book he wrote. Genesis um, in Greek is known and referred to as the Pentateuch. In Hebrew, it's referred to as the Torah. Genesis was written 3,500 years ago. 
and it spans and covers a period of 2,000 years. Genesis sets the foundation for the Torah. The Torah are the first five books of the Bible. So the Torah can be understood, and it was understood by the Hebrews as God's revelation to them. And the Torah does not just speak to the law of Moses, but the Torah speaks to the teaching of God, the instruction of God from Genesis through to Deuteronomy. The divine revelation that God gave to the people of Israel. Though the Torah can be more fully comprehended and embodied when God gave the Ten Commandments. That was the climax and pinnacle of the law of God and everything that God had to say to the people of Israel. Genesis gets its title from the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. And as you know, and you know our history, we've covered it when we preached um, uh, and taught through the book of Daniel, is that uh, Israel as a people and a nation were dominated by various superpowers. And one of them were, were the Greeks and the Romans. And so embedded into their culture was the language of, of, of Greek. So they spoke Greek, they spoke Hebrew, they spoke Aramaic because they were once dominated and ruled by Babylon, the Chaldeans, and Aramaic was a common world language, global language uh, at the time. And so there was a Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures which was referred to and called the Septuagint. But the Hebrew title for the book of Genesis uh, is the Hebrew word Bereshit. Bereshit is the Hebrew title and it simply means in the beginning because it was the practice of ancient Near Eastern, Middle Eastern people to name a book by the first few words that open on the scroll. Okay, so the title in Hebrew, if you pick up a Hebrew uh, Old Testament, the title of Genesis is Bereshit. You still with me? When we look at the genre of, of the book of uh, Genesis, there's actually a lot of debate around it. We're not going to get caught in that thicket fence. But uh, it's generally looked at as a historical narrative. Okay? But it's a historical work with a lot of poetic aesthetics, you know, and trimmings and nuances to it, especially when we look at Genesis chapter 1. Okay. But the goal of the narrator and the goal of Moses is to teach us and to teach the people of Israel by telling historical stories. And that is the genuine purpose of historical biblical narratives, is that the biblical authors are telling us and teaching us through stories of actual historical accounts. Okay, so what Genesis does is simply communicating history in a theological way and in an artful way. And so the author will uh, employ uh, many poetic uh, Hebrew you know, uh, literature uh, devices, literature uh, devices to his writings 
and his accounts of actual events that took place. Now how Genesis is divided is, is quite uh, simple. It's divided into two parts. Okay? You have primeval history and you have patriarchal history. Okay? So from chapters 1 through to chapters 11 you have primeval history. And then from chapters 12 to chapter 50 you have patriarchal history. Now when we examine the first 11 chapters, the patriarchal history, um, there are four events that occur under primeval history. It's the creation, it's the fall of Adam and Eve, it's the flood of Noah, and it's the Tower of Babel, four events under primeval history. When we look at patriarchal history, there are four patriarchs that Moses tells us about. It's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And that's how you simply divide the book of Genesis between primeval history and patriarchal history. What is the purpose behind the writing of the book of Genesis? Well, you must understand that since Moses wrote the book of Genesis, and you know the story of Moses, uh, he was and the people of Israel were in slavery for over 400 years in Egypt. And they grew from a family to a nation in Egypt. So they had lost some sense of national identity. And so what Moses is trying to do is give Israel a trace of their history. But not only that, he gives us a trace of the history of our origins for the whole of mankind. And so we see Moses introduce God, he introduces his nature and his, his capabilities and his promises and his relationship with man. We see Genesis give us an account of the beginning of the universe, the beginning of history, the beginning of the human race, the beginning of marriage and life, and the beginning of government and civilization, the beginning of music, the beginning of arts, the beginning of how sin entered the world and how sin created passage for death. And he also gives us a trace to the beginnings of how God developed his redemptive plan to save mankind. The most significant plot and storyline behind the book of Genesis, unfortunately, is a tragic one. Can't help but get the feeling when you've done reading the book of Genesis, especially the first 11 chapters, what is wrong with the world? What went wrong with the world and how can it be fixed? And so the narrative of Genesis unfolds in a unique way. And we begin to understand as the plot emerges that God has a plan to redeem his creation. And so the book metaphorically and in some uh, pictorial way, opens up with the scene of a living God. And in chapter 50, it ends with the scene of a dead man in a coffin, Joseph. And that's the picture we have of the relationship between God and creature. 
God and his creation. Pawson stated that the big question about Genesis is this. Do we believe what God says or do we believe what man teaches? That's the fundamental question in the book of Genesis. Pawson further went on to say that the entire Bible hinges on the book of Genesis. If Genesis is shaken, then the entire Bible is mistaken. So it all goes back to that initial challenge that Satan posed to Eve. Did God really say? Did God really say? And so will you believe the report of the Lord or will you believe the lies of Satan? Will you believe what God says? Or will you believe what false scientific theories say? That's the bottom line when it comes to the book of Genesis. Genesis was also written as a polemic. Now a polemic is a strong argument or ideological stance against a line or system of beliefs. So in Israel's context, like we've, we've explained, remember they existed in an Egyptian culture for 400 years. And the Egyptian culture was steeped in a polytheistic uh, worldview. In other words, they did not believe in one God. They believed in many gods. They worshipped sun deities. They worshipped astrophysical deities. They worshipped animal deities. Anything that moved, they worshipped. And this is the culture in which the Israelite people grew up in. And Moses pins the book of Genesis and says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And if you were an ancient Middle Eastern uh, reader of the Hebrew account of creation, you would have been deeply upset and provoked. Because what you are implying is that this God of the Hebrews, Elohim, is the creator of the sun that we worship, of the moon that we worship, of the seas that we worship. And so the book of Genesis is a strong argument against the culture and, and, and ideologies of the Egyptians. And you must have, to some extent, an understanding of, of the beliefs and, and mythology that that the Egyptians and Mesopotamians uh, kind of constructed around them. And for the sake of time, I'll just highlight the Egyptian creation myth, okay, and what they believed in their cosmogony. Okay, each Egyptian creation myth uh, describes aspects of people's understanding of how creation came into being. Okay, and there are four different views. And these four different views come from four different locations in Egypt. Okay? Uh, there, were, there were four locations, the first one being Hermopolis, the second one Heliopolis, third one Memphis, and the, the fourth one Tabez. Now just a quick look at what the Hermopolis 
cosmopolitan view represented and what they believed. So these Egyptians from Hermopolis believed that in the beginning there was only darkness and there was a limitless black ocean which they called chaos. This was the chaos. And out of this ocean came a rock of earth. And out of this rock emerged a lotus that blossomed, a flower that blossomed. And this flower that blossomed revealed the newborn sun god called Atum, also known as Atumra. And Atum is said to have brought light to the cosmos and he's the god that initiated creation. Atum then represented the be-all and the end-all of worship. He existed in these primordial waters and it said that he alone is responsible for creation and it said sometimes that he emerged from an egg and in Egyptian uh, creation mythology he's also represented as a scarab beetle and so from his bodily fluids he created two other gods Shu and Tefnut and they represented the air and the moisture Shu and Tefnut then created the next pair of gods called Geb and Nut okay I don't want to nobody naming your children Geb and Nut okay <laughs> And Geb and Nut represented earth and sky. And Geb and Nut together with Shu and Tefnut and Ra created the physical framework for the world. Geb and Nut then produced the next set of gods called Osiris and Isis. Osiris and Isis then created the next pair of gods, Seth and Neftus. Seth represented death and disorder. Uh, Nephthys represented life and order. Okay. And as the story unfolds, as the story unfolds, Shu and Nephthys, the children of the creator god Atum, wandered away from the chaos, from the waters of Nu. And so Atum descended, decided to send his eye. So he sends his eye, his eye scours the entire earth looking for Shu and Tefnut. And eventually as the story goes and the, and, and, and the narrative goes, is that the eye returned heartbroken. Okay, some weird anatomy going. The eye returned heartbroken, possibly because uh, the eye could not find the two gods or because the eye was replaced by Atum and the eye started to shed tears and as the eye of Atum began to shed, shed tears humans were formed from the tears and this is the kind of belief system that the children of Israel are dealing with and so Moses gets to writing and he says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it's important what you believe, because what you believe impacts on how you behave. So this morning, quickly for 
Bible topic like we usually do. Let's look at the topic of creation versus evolution. And most of you might think that it's a battle between science and the Bible or science and faith. But like I said in the beginning, it's really a battle between God's word and man's word. Okay. And whichever, you, whichever stance you take will ultimately affect what you believe and how you behave. This Bible topic, let me just, uh, as a precursor, state that it's not designed to solve the debate. Yeah. This debate will go on forever. But I just want to lay down some kind of foundation for, for us who believe in the beginning. God. Okay? And maybe for some of you, just uh, open up and ignite a hunger and a desire to search out um, the, the subject for yourself and study it for yourself. You can look at, uh, as a Christian, you can look at two sites. Uh, the uh, Institute for Creation, you can make a note of this, you can listen back to the recording, and Answers in Genesis. Okay, those two websites. Full research, documented scientific research, you can, you can refer to that in your spare time in, instead of uh, binge watching uh, the Flash series. <laughs> Amen. Okay. So let's start at what is evolution. The theory actually, and I emphasize theory, because evolution is a theory. Yes. It stems from Charles Darwin, who existed in the 1800s. Darwin proposed that species can change over time and that new species come from pre-existing species and that all species share a common ancestor. Yeah. The theory is passed off as a fact, ironically. A theory passed off as a fact. So you'll find it in your kids' curriculum, you'll find it on websites as a fact, scientific fact, you can research it. But let's look at the facts. Can we look at the facts? Okay, let's look at the facts. <laughs> Firstly, let's look at genetics. It's been proven scientifically that mutations do not build complexity. Anything that mutates does not gravitate towards complex life. I'm not sure if you've seen a picture of what an Alsatian used to look like 100 years ago compared to what an Alsatian looks like now. But it does not look good on the part of the Alsatian. <laughs> Darwin evolution relies on what's called random mutations. Random mutations form the basis of evolution. Uh, this is where um, random, random uh, mutations that are selected by blind, unguided processes of what's called natural selection. And Natural selection takes place and this blind, unguided process uh, improves, apparently improves and builds complexity of life. Now I want you to ask the question, anything left to chance, can chance build complexity? Now a Biologist Lynn 
Margulis has stated that new mutations don't create new species. They create offspring that are impaired. Another uh, uh, scientist by the name of Pierre-Paul Grasset from the French Academy of Sciences, he also contended that mutations have very limited constructive capacity. Because no matter how numerous they may be, mutations do not produce any kind of evolution. And so the theory that through billions of years of man mutating and evolving from a primordial soup that scrambled its way out of a warm pond that eventually evolved into an ape-like species is an impossible mathematical probability. When you look at biochemistry, you will also see that unguided random processes cannot produce cellular complexity and they fail to demonstrate it in scientific labs. There are just no transitional forms of species. Nothing adapts outside of its kind. Can only adapt in its kind. Chance can never produce complexity. And while you have these adaptations on a micro level and between and within its kind, it can never cross over into a macro level of evolution. And it's never been demonstrated. So a biochemist by the name of Franklin Harrell admits there are presently no detailed Darwinian accounts of evolution of any biochemical or cellular system, only a variety of wishful speculations. When we look at paleontology, that's the study of fossils. You know where you have the picture of the ape evolving into a Neanderthal and into a walking man. That is a, 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 an image that represents uh, what paleontology calls the evolution of man. But when you look at the fossil records, there are no intermediate fossils. There are no transitional species. In layman's terms, if dogs and cats evolved, where are the dats and where are the cocks? <laughs> so the fossil record continues to be an embarrassment to the Darwinian theory of evolution. And Ernst Mayer, another biochemist, explained that in, in the year 2000 that new species usually appear in the fossil record suddenly, not connected with any ancestors by any series of intermediaries. In other words, there are no transitions or transitional species that have been found. And there are only three ways to make an ape man or Neanderthal. Only three ways. Number one, make an ape look more human-like. Number two, make a human look more ape-like. Or number three, fraudulently mix the two together. There are no Neanderthals or ape men. Either human or ape. Yeah. 
When we look at taxonomy, taxonomy is the study of how species are classified in the evolution charts. And Darwin tried to construct this, um, but, and he referred to it as a tree of life, where it shows how species evolved and then uh, diverted into mammals and reptiles through the evolutionary process. Uh, when we look at Darwin's tree of life, Darwin's tree of life has failed to present the tree of life. Darwin claimed that a unique, exclusively hierarchical pattern of relationships between organisms based on their similarities and, and differences was a fact of nature. That's what he claimed, for which evolution, and in particular, a branching process of descent with modification was the explanation. But biologists have hoped that DNA evidence would reveal the grand tree of life where all organisms are clearly, clearly related, but it hasn't. And when we look at chemistry, chemistry in the field of science cannot account for the origin of life. It is still an unsolved mystery. In other words, there is no demonstrable evidence for the Big Bang. And chemical evolution has failed to create living systems in the laboratory. As an evolutionary biologist, Massimo Maglucci has admitted, we really don't have a clue how life originated on Earth by natural means. So what about dinosaurs, you ask? Evolutionists claim that dinosaurs lived millions of years ago. The book of Job declares that there were two creatures, the behemoth and the leviathan, that fits no living creature today. A striking artifact in Asia was found in the ruins of Angor outside Siem Reap in Cambodia that existed in the year 1000. Now think about that, in the year 1000. What year are we now? 2023. They discovered a fossil, well, well they discovered an artifact which the people of Cambodia have carved out of a dinosaur. You know that long dinosaur, forget the, the name, uh, failed at uh, uh, Brontosaurus with the uh, bone structures on its back. Yeah. They discovered a carving of that particular dinosaur, dinosaur on the building features. How could they have known if dinosaurs were millions of years old? Dr. Mary Schweitzer and the team made a startling discovery in 2005 where they managed to unearth the bones of a T-Rex. And this brought the whole scientific world to a standstill, where they found soft tissue in the dinosaur's bones, which is impossible if the dinosaur was millions of years old. My conclusion is this, on the whole debate of science and, and faith. In the words of Bruce Barton, when you can dump a load of bricks in a corner, 
Let me watch them arrange themselves into a house. And when you can empty a handful of springs and screws and wires on my desk, let me see them gather themselves together and form a watch. It will be easier for me to believe that these thousands of worlds could have been created and balanced and set to moving in their separate orbits all without any directing intelligence at all. Is the teleological argument, the philosophical argument that states two things. Everything that has a beginning has a cause. The universe has a beginning, it must have a cause. Secondly, every design has a designer. The universe is too highly complex of a design. Therefore, it must have a designer. Life just does not make sense without a grand designer. Now let's look at Genesis chapter 1. And what we have in Genesis chapter 1 is a beautiful, highly sophisticated presentation of creation. Genesis chapter 1 can be structured in three ways. Firstly, verse 1 and verse 1. Uh, chapter 1 verse 1 is the introduction. Chapter 1 from verses 2 to 31 is the creation week. And chapter 2 verses 1 to 3 is the conclusion or epilogue. Three parts. Let's look at the introduction. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. What we must understand is that Genesis 1 verse 1 is an introductory statement. It's an introductory statement. That means Genesis opening statement functions both as a superscription and a summary. It's a summary of all that occurred in the six-day week of creation. So when the Bible reads, in the beginning God created the heavens or the earth, it's a summary. And what's interesting about this opening verse of scripture is that Moses is not arguing for the existence of God. He's simply declaring it because the Israelites understood it is a known fact that God exists. So there's no need to prove his existence or argue for his existence. Moses just simply declares, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That phrase, heavens and the earth, is a poetic expression called merism, which signifies the whole universe. It's like the expression day and night, which signifies all of time. It's like the expression man and beast, which signifies all of created animals. So when the Bible says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, it simply means God created everything. There are three English words we have in our English Bible in the beginning, but when you look at it in the Hebrew, it is one term, one word, perashit, a Hebrew word. And there's a lot to expound about this word, because, uh, this word and term because Hebrew language is so rich and layered and complex. But I just want to highlight the fact that this term Bereshit literally refers to the head of creation, the start of creation. So when the Bible says Bereshit, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, it's also important to look at the Hebrew term used for the name of God. 
and the term used here in in Genesis 1 verse 1 is the Hebrew word Elohim now we're learning some Hebrew Berashit Elohim and the word Elohim is a plural term its singular is El and its plural is Elohim which implies two things literally Elohim in its plural sense means three or more and so Alan Ross argues that Elohim as this name used and employed by God in Genesis 1 verse 1 actually speaks for the Trinity because in chapter 1 verse 26 you have God saying within the God here and, and, and Trinity let us make man in our own image Walkie also states that Elohim, the plural name of God, not only denotes uh, the Trinity and speaks to the Trinity, but also speaks of His majesty. And this name of God represents His transcendent nature and relationship with creation. His quintessential expression of, of being this heavenly transcendent being. We want us to focus on this morning and we want to drive home an important point is on this Hebrew term in the beginning God created Berashit Elohim and the Hebrew word for created is Bara not Bara hospital <laughs> Bara okay. this Hebrew term bara which is created in English is a verb that is exclusively used for God and God only from Genesis to Revelations only God can bara only God can create in other words God alone and exclusively is the creator of the organized universe no one else can claim this right Nobody else can claim this title. He alone is creation, is, is creator. It belongs to him and him alone. Understanding God as our creator is fundamental and foundational to our faith. It's one of the most principal attributes of God that we can ever affirm. That he is our creator. And when you embrace in the beginning God created, becomes easy for you to accept any other miracle that he does in scripture I have no problem with Jonah being swallowed up by a whale or sea parting when I know in the beginning God created and so Hebrews 1 uh, he Hebrews 11 that great chapter of faith verses 1 to 3 we see the Hebrew writer from the very onset of this chapter of faith discuss God as creator he says now faith is the substance of things hoped for the evidence of things not seen for by it the elders obtained a good testimony by faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were made of the things which are visible were not made by the things that are visible 
By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what is visible. We are living in a time when this truth is being challenged. Where man is trying to strip the creator from his creation. So it's important for us to understand what the Bible teaches about creation and incorporate, incorporate that into our worldview and our theology and what we believe about God and His Word. It's one of the most uh, foremost and first assertions that John makes in his Gospel. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that was made. When you approach God, the first understanding you have of Him is that He is your Creator. And what we believe about creation ultimately affects what we believe about God and what we believe about salvation and what we believe about every other teaching of Scripture because every teaching of Scripture finds its roots in Genesis. So if you believe that man evolved from soup that crawled its way out of a warm pond eventually evolved into an ape-like creature I want to ask you the question what is your purpose? What is your reason for it? What moral obligations do we have towards each other? You might as well eat and drink for tomorrow we die. If we believe in these scientific theories that there is no creation, creator, that means we can live and not worry about giving an account for our lives. That means you can do as you please. But Erickson states that in the biblical narrative it's important for us to understand how redemption unfolds and it unfolds in four ways creation the fall redemption and glorification that's how the story of scripture unfolds and Erickson further states that the doctrine of creation is important because it affects everything we understand about how this narrative unfolds starts with creation, moves on to the fall, redemption, and in glorification, which is creation recreated. And so in the study of creation, Bavink uh, is quoted as saying that God, who alone is uncreated and eternal, has formed and given existence to everything outside of himself. He did this from nothing but the word of his power and when it was done he said it was good five things we need to understand about the study of creation firstly is that God is uncreated and is eternal secondly that he created the universe and all of space and time and matter without the aid or assistance of anyone Thirdly, everything that he created, he created outside of himself. It did not emanate from him. Everything that is material has, has a start and beginning and, and isn't eternal because it was made outside of him. 
and did not emanate from him. And he did this by the power of his spirit and by the spoken word of his power. And when it was done, he said, it was good. And what the, the Middle Eastern mythology, uh, what Middle Eastern mythology taught in Egypt and Mesopotamia was that they, they, they taught in a concept called dualism. That in the beginning there was evil and good. But this is not the story of creation. When God created everything, He said it's all good. And since He is the creator of all existence, it's important to know that creation depends on its creator. There's no life, meaning of life outside of God. And since He is creator, He is sovereign over His creation. And what does it mean to say that God is sovereign over His creation? That means that creation is under His control. And what does it mean that He is sovereign? That means He has the right, the power, and the wisdom to exercise His will over creation how He sees fit. And since He is creator, we've seen His power and that it is limitless. And since He is sovereign, the only limitation He has over His creation is the limitations He imposes on Himself. So He chooses to do what He pleases. And He chooses to permit whatever He chooses. And that does not undermine His rule, His sovereignty, and it doesn't undermine the fact that He's good. And that's, that's a hard pull for us to swallow. Because when, when God permits evil, or when, when God permits something, we automatically point a finger and say, you're not good. But being sovereign means that whatever He allows, whatever He does, is totally His right over creation. And we don't have two legs to stand on. Being sovereign means that he answers to no one. He can only be known if he allows himself to be known. But even when he is known, you can never put him under a microscope. You can never scrutinize him. He's never at a loss. He's never limitless, uh, limited. He's never frustrated. Whenever he acts, he acts in a way that pleases him. And he is never constrained to do anything that displeases him. He is above all, over all, greater than all, and wiser than all. Another point I'll make on the doctrine of creation is this. That inherent in the idea that God is a creator is that he is an intelligent designer. And only an intelligent designer could create just the right universe. Not chance. Our universe is fine-tuned and just right. The universe has just the right gravitational force. If it were too strong, the stars would be too hot and everything will be burnt up quickly. 
and life anywhere would not be supported. If it were too weak, the stars would remain cool and we'd have nuclear fusion and nothing would ever ignite and there'd be no heat or light. The universe has just the right speed of light. If it were faster, the stars would send out too much light. If it were slower, the stars would not send out enough light. The universe has just the right average distance between the stars. If it were any more larger, the heavy element density would be too thin for rocky planets to form. And there would be only gaseous planets. If it were smaller, the planetary orbits would become destabilized and the gravitational pull would pull the stars into each other. The universe has just the right polarity of water molecule. In other words, the balance between hydrogen and oxygen atoms. If it were greater, the heat of fusion and vaporization would be too great for any life to exist, even on Earth. If it were too small and unbalanced, the heat of fusion and vaporization would be too small for our existence either way. So we can conclude that the universe is fine-tuned and chance could not produce or manufacture such a fine-tuned, organized universe. Doesn't take you long to notice that when we look at Genesis 1, the attention is not on the creation. So let's, let's leave aside for the moment all this talk about creation. And let's address who is the main clause of Genesis 1 verse 1. In the beginning God created. Verse 3, then God said, Verse 4, then God saw the light. Verse 5, God called the light day. Verse 6, then God said. Verse 7, then God made. Then verse 8, God called the firmament. Verse 9, God said. God called. God blessed. God sanctified. God said. God made. Kidness states that it's no accident that God is the subject of the first sentence of the Bible for this word Elohim dominates the entire chapter of Genesis chapter 1 and it catches your eye at every point in the page. It's used over 35 times and in many verses of this narrative. And there's much to say about the six-day creation process, but what's more important is that the main subject does not miss our eye. That this story is about God. The story of creation is really about the glory of the Creator and how He demonstrated His power by speaking everything out of nothing. Romans chapter 4 verse 17 says, God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. The Latin expression, as I mentioned earlier, is the term or phrase creatio ex nihilo. It means that God in creation spoke everything out of nothing. This is a, a 
capability of no one else but God. You cannot call things out of nothing. Yeah. I hear us praying like this. Yeah. You know, we just call those things and oh no, there's all that. No, this is ex nihilo. It's a creative process. Only God can exclusively produce everything and something out of nothing. You can speak to a mountain, yes. But you cannot ex nihilo. And what ex nihilo teaches is very important because it teaches two main things. Number one, firstly, we cannot call things into existence. Mm -hmm. Secondly, there are those who teach that creation emanated from God's eternal being, being and everything is eternal. No. What creation ex nihilo means is that matter, everything in, in the universe is material. And that God did not use any pre-existing material. He created everything outside of himself by the word of his power. What kind of transcendent being can do that? Nothing. Think about it. Nothing. All of reality called into existence from nothing, no material. Humans create differently. We manufacture from material, you know, from the resources of the earth. But God does not need any material from nothing. What kind of power is this? That by just merely speaking, just mere utterances, God can call the whole of reality into existence. We can draw a few conclusions from this about God. Firstly, that he has the power simply to will things into existence. Secondly, creation is an act of his will and he is not coerced by anything outside of himself. Thirdly, God does not emanate anything from him in creation. And nothing is poured out from his being as Eastern mythology teaches. Everything is created outside of himself by the power of his word. If he poured it out from himself, all matter would be eternal. And fourthly, we learn that we respect the power of his word. Now when we look into creation week very quickly, look at verse 2. The Bible reads in verse 1, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was on the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So what we presented here with is a circumstantial clause. In other words, it describes the manner or circumstances or conditions that occurred under the main clause, that occurred under God's uh, demonstration of power. And so we presented immediately with verse 2, uh, with the earth being in a negative state what seems before creation. But when you look at the syntax and grammatical structure, you see that this scene describes the scene of day one. Literally. 
when you look at the grammar in the Hebrew. What some of us have taught and what some of us have imposed on the text is that there is a gap between verse 1 and 2 where a pre-Adamic race existed. But this is not what the Bible teaches. There is no gap theory. So the first thing God did to demonstrate his power is create the world unformed and then speak light. Now, this is important to understand because when you read through the creation week, this is how God creates everything. Okay? He first creates the habitat. Then he creates the inhabitants. He moves from general to particular and specific. That's how God dealt with creation. But when you look at Genesis chapter 1 verse 2, why are we being presented with this picture of the earth? Why are we presented with a world that looks like a chaotic mess? That's dark and without form and it's void. And why does the situation look so bleak? That's because the Holy Spirit wanted to paint a picture of us, for, of God. He wanted to paint us the picture that God is a redeemer over creation. And that God is active in redeeming the earth. So in verse 2, you, you see how God takes chaos and brings it to order. You see how God takes darkness and brings it to light. You, you see how God takes that which looks unprofitable and bring order to it. And though at the beginning there was darkness over the face of the earth and there was a waste and the earth was a wasteland and void, when God was done with the earth, it was all good. And that's the great scheme and plot of all the Bible is that the Bible is not just a divine revelation of God to man. No, the Bible is divine redemptive inspiration and revelation. The Bible is not just divine revelation to man, it is divine redemptive revelation. This is the central idea of how God operates. He's redeeming the world. He's redeeming what seems dark and chaotic and he brings it and turns it into something beautiful. And this is what God still does today can take your life no matter how messy and sloppy and chaotic it is and he can redeem it and turn it around because this is what he specializes in and the, and your life may look like a mess now but he can turn it into a message may look like darkness is all around you, but He can bring the light. may look like your life is going nowhere and you have no purpose and you don't know how you're going to get out of the situation. But God is able to redeem your story and turn it all around for His glory. And when He's done with you, He will stand back and say, 
it was good. And we realize this grand scheme and, and, and picture of God more fully when we look at Christ. Because that's the most complete picture we have of redemption. And God in Genesis 1 verse 2 just gave us a taste of how he redeems creation. But when we get to the Gospels and when we get to Jesus, we see this more fully expressed and comprehended and actualized in Christ Jesus. That God was in Christ reconciling the world back to himself. Ephesians 1 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love having predestined us or predestined us to the adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to his good pleasure of his world to the praise of his glory of his grace by which he has made us accepted in the beloved in him we have redemption in him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins. What does it mean to redeem? Three things. It means to pay off, to buy back, and to exchange. And what did Christ do for us? He paid off our debt with divine justice. Because sin was a debt we contracted with God. And so he paid off that debt. He paid off a debt that he did not owe. Because we owed a debt we could not pay. And he satisfied the demands of God's justice and God's wrath because by nature we were children of wrath. But he paid off that debt so that we could be redeemed and reconciled back to God. To be redeemed means that we have been bought back. We have been bought back from hell and the grave and we, we were destined and deserving of hell but we were like a brand snatched from the fire. He pulled us out and he brought us back from the kingdom of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of his son. He paid that price with his blood because no silver or gold or precious thing that any economy could gather up, no legal tender of this world could ever satisfy and pay the price of the debt we owed, except for his blood. And he exchanged his life for ours, his righteousness for our faulty rags, his power for our weakness, his robes for our rags, he redeemed us. His creator and, has, and his redeemer. That's what Genesis 1 teaches. His creator and his redeemer. And when we look at the creation week, like we explained, it, it falls into a pattern that moves from general to specific. In other words, God creates the general environment first and then he creates the species to fill the the environment and so he creates the habitat then he creates inhabitants so when you look at Genesis 1 and 2 many have said that there's a contradiction between uh, Genesis 1 and, and, and Genesis chapter 2 because they are two creation accounts but when you critically examine both chapters these two creation accounts you will find that Genesis 1 is actually the broader outline of creation and how creation reaches its climax when God creates man. But when you look at Genesis 2, you see how Genesis 2 creation actually focuses on the creation of man. 
and Genesis chapter 2 actually falls on the sixth day of creation of how God creates man in preparation uh, 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 for, for what's to come and you see how Genesis 1 and 2 actually set the scene for man's failure in the garden in chapter 3 and what's interesting uh, what I'll say about uh, the comparison between Genesis chapter 1 and 2 is this is that there are two distinct names used for God between each chapter in chapter 1 the, the name of God used is Elohim the only name of God used in chapter 1 is Elohim in chapter 2 the only name of God uses Yahweh so you ask yourself why would God use or Moses use the, the term Elohim in chapter 1 and Yahweh in, in, in chapter 2 is because Elohim refers to the general name of God in the context of creator and creation. It emphasizes God in a distant, transcendent and powerful sense. It's used to describe God as a majestic, transcendent, uh, powerful being that's creating the world. But when we get to chapter 2 and the name Yahweh is used, you must understand that this is God's personal name. And he uses this in the context of a relationship with his creature Adam. And so when God goes about creating humanity, it's Yahweh that does the act. And Yahweh is personally involved with his people and what do we learn from this in theological language we learn that God is both transcendent and eminent in other words when we refer to God being transcendent we refer to God being outside of humanity humanity's experience mankind's perception and there's no way we can grasp this infinite being he's transcendent when we refer to him being imminent we mean that even though he is inconceivable and transcendent and out of this world and beyond your reasoning and 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 and, and beyond your comprehension that he is knowable and he is perceivable and he is graspable and Jesus, in not so many words, taught us this. He said, when you, when you pray to the Father, say, Father who art in heaven. In other words, he's, he's not a God of this earth. And he constantly referenced the Father who is in heaven so that you know that there's a distance between heaven and earth. And he's not like man in any way. But then again, Jesus also says in John chapter 14, if anyone loves me, and if anyone will keep my word, my father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home in him. Which means, even though he is God above us, he can be God within you. And what theistic evolutionists hold and believe is that when God created the universe, he created the laws of nature and once the ball was rolling and everything was created what theistic evolutionists believe is that he stopped and he ceased and he discontinued to intervene in the affairs of, of this world that God doesn't interfere with, with day-to-day -day existence 
he done his job and he's done you know like a like a deadbeat dad you know just made you pregnant and left you that's what they believe but what Genesis 1 and 2 teach us not only is he creator but he's involved with his creation and he wants a relationship with his creature and he's interested and very much involved in your day-to-day -day affairs so when you look at creation the six-day creation the days are paralleled day one day two and day three God creates the environment okay he creates light uh, on day one and light is paralleled with day four where he creates the particular lights the sun moon and stars day two God creates the sea and the sky the habitat and then day five he creates the fish and the birds to occupy the, the, the sea and the sky day three God creates the land and the plants and in day six he fills that environment with animals and mankind and so six days of creation can be divided into two sets of three when Genesis 1 verse 2 says the earth was without form and void and darkness uh, was on the face of the deep I want you to think of those terms without form and void so what God does on the first three days is he gives form he gives environment he gives form to what's formless and then from day 4 5 and 6 he fills the emptiness with the sun moon and stars and fish and birds and land and animals and what develops over the next three days oh time up <laughs> and what develops over the next few days <laughs> is that God creates form and void can I have five minutes thank you so much <laughs> so at the end of three days and at the end of the sixth day God fills the he fills the void and he creates the form what creation week also teaches us is that God accomplishes his work through his word God accomplishes his work through his word Alan Ross stated in the account of Genesis chapter 1 that the foundation of the law the foundation of the law of Moses is that God gives his word to his people and that in numerous ways the law for Israel finds its rationale in creation that's why when we read the Old Testament it's important to understand that God accomplishes his work through his word one thing I want to say that we often forget uh, just give me a few minutes just to wind us up is that when we read the Old Testament we don't read the Old Testament just um, uh, through the eyes of the original audience it's important that when we read the Old Testament we read the Old Testament through New Covenant eyes we read it from being New Testament New Covenant believers in other words the law was a shadow of what to come Christ is the substance of that shadow so the law pointed to Christ 
so Christ is the full picture we have and whenever you read the scriptures you will see that when any author of the New Testament interprets the Old Testament they interpret it through Christ they don't use the Old Testament to interpret Christ they use Christ to interpret the, New, the Old Testament and they learned this from Jesus in Luke 24 verse 27 when Jesus spoke uh, when the Bible says and at, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets Jesus expounds expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself so when Paul looks at that rock that followed the Israelites in the wilderness he says that spiritual rock was Christ just Christ when John looks at the manna that fell down in the wilderness he says that manna was the bread that came down from heaven that manna was Jesus when they looked at the tabernacle of Moses the dwelling place of God they said that's Emmanuel so as new covenant believers we don't start with in the beginning God we start with it is finished we start from the cross and we look back over the Old Testament account of Scripture and that's how we interpret it through the lens of Jesus so when we look at Genesis 1 the question we must ask is where is Jesus where is Jesus in Genesis chapter 1 and John told us didn't he in the beginning was the word that's how he interpreted the Old Testament that's how he interpreted in the beginning God created he said in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God he was in the beginning with God and all things were made by him and for him and through him and nothing that was made was made without him he is that word that spoke all creation into existence he's the reason why we exist he is the word of God he created us he formed us he's responsible for all of existence and John shows us that the word of God is responsible for creation and as I close on Genesis chapter 2 verses 1 to 3 on our epilogue what you'll see that when God speaks he speaks with mathematical precision so when you look at Genesis chapter 2 1 to 3 in Hebrew you will see three figures three numbers pop up all the time it's the number 3 the number 7 and the number 10 and you'll see these numbers in in, in you study them in numerology they, they throughout the scriptures you know so at three points God actually speaks something out of nothing three times on the third occasion he calls something by name and three times he makes something and three times he blesses it on seven occasions when we read uh, that, that God saw that it was good that it occurred seven, seven times and these seven and of course he created the world in seven days and the first sentence in Hebrew Genesis 1 verse 1 is in seven words in Hebrew furthermore the last three sentences of the creation account that's Genesis uh, in Genesis chapter 2 verse 1 3 is in seven 
Hebrew words. And in total, when you read through the Genesis account, there are 10 commands which lay down the foundation for the law. And on the seventh day, the seventh day breaks the pattern of the six days. And we're told that God's done with creation. He's done evaluating his creation. He's done his cease from his, from his work. And in anthropomorphic uh, sense, he, he's, he's done with his labor. And the seventh day is emphasized between chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. And I want you to quickly read that while we close again. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the hosts of them were finished and on the seventh day, notice the emphasis, on the seventh day God ended his work which he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done and God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it he rested from all his work in which he had created and made. And what Alan Ross tells us is that the reader receives a strengthened impression that the seventh day is a celebration of completion. When you read verses 2 of chapter 2, the first part, and when you read the second part of, of verse 2, and when you read verse 3, all those three clauses are in seven Hebrew words, emphasizing that God blesses the seventh day. Now we don't particularly celebrate the Sabbath, but what Hebrews chapter 4 does say is that Jesus is our Sabbath. And the writer of Hebrews says that since Christ had died, there is no longer a need for sacrifices, for us to work and sacrifice to get near to God. But one sacrifice has been made once for all, and that's by Christ Jesus. And because he made one ultimate sacrifice, the work is complete. And he now remains our Sabbath, and we can enter into his rest. Amen. Where is Jesus in creation? He is our creator. He is our Redeemer, and He is the Word. Can we stand? Let me close our eyes.